0: Hi folks, this is Jack Speargo in another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is May the 24th, 2021. This is actually it's May the twenty fifth, two thousand twenty one. This episode twenty seven seventy eight of the Survival Podcast. It's a Tuesday. Um, that little screw up there is because it's my first week uh, doing the new show format, and uh, so it's going to be one of those things where uh, I, it's going to take me a while to get it, uh, adjusted to it. It probably won't take you guys long to get adjusted. You just Listen to whatever show comes down in the podcast feed on any given day. Well, for me, this is, this is new territory, you know, recording shows a day in advance, basically, running the Miyagi mornings on Monday. I um, hope you guys enjoy the new show format. Like I said, I don't think it'll be that big of a difference for you guys, but I'm, I'm really working hard uh, at rebalancing some things in my life where I can take a little more time to myself, take a little more time to myself. And, um, you know, as I think about it for the first 18 months of this show, I did it in my car and I did it on the way to work. And so I still had a full-time job and a half, probably like full-time two jobs. Um, I was running one, I was running two companies and, and was a partner in a holding company that owned both of them and several others at the time. And, um, I was able to do this show in a way that really got it off the ground and got it growing really, really fast. And I was in no way putting in the time that I've put in for the last, you know, 11 and a half years since I went full time with it. And as I sat back, I just felt there had to be a balance. There had to be a balance where I could pull back a little bit without giving you guys less because I didn't want to give you less. And uh, with Miyagi Mornings being the hit that it is, I I think that we found a good middle ground But what what is Jack going to do with a whole extra day off? Well, I'll probably find ways to put most of my efforts into work with it on the property and in projects and things like that. But I am going to step back that extra day from content creation, production and stuff on doing the show. And one of the things I'll spend time doing is fishing, especially in the coming months. I mean, this is coming into that time of year where it's just great to be a fisherman in North Texas. And uh, maybe take my grandson fishing some. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Today's show, episode 2778, is Fishing Hacks for the Everyday fisherman. And and I think we'll have a, a, a good time with this show together. I just kind of wanted to give you where I'm coming from with this. If you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know that one of my real joys in life is fishing. I love to fish, and I mean no matter what type of fishing, I love it. I just spent 10 days on the beach in the amazing waters of Sanibel, Florida. A place that people travel from around the world to fish. I mean, I met a guy that that spent a week there fishing mostly for tarpon on boats, but he came from Alaska. You talk about like, you know, Alaska's kind of the last frontier. It's like a, a a paradise for the outdoorsman, but he went to this place to go fishing. That's how great it is. So, yeah, I love things like that. I love taking guided trips and all. But I still enjoy sliding down the bank in the back of a small city park where I've identified a creek on Google Maps. And you end up with this creek that's like, you know, 10, 15 feet across it. Most of the places, the other one, there's some holes where the fish are hiding. You could easily walk across it. And if you were wearing, you know, rubber boots, like, you know, mid, mid-shin mid height rubber boots, you probably wouldn't even get your feet wet. And then finding out the little holes and all, all that's in there is some bullhead cats and some stuff like that. Like, I, I, I still love that. And then... Two weeks from then, I'll get on a boat and go out like with a top-notch guide for stripers or something like that. Like I don't care. I I, I really prefer to fish rather than do almost anything else. I, I love it that much. And I'll talk to you a little bit about why that's the case when we, when we get into today's subject. But that's, that's where I'm coming from. But I'm also going to be bringing you 15 fun and useful fishing hacks. I've been doing this since I was 8 years old. I'm almost 50. I'll be 50 this August. Is that right, or I'll be 49? I don't even know anymore. I'll be 49. I'll be 49. I'll be 49 this August. Um, so over 40 years, I've been fishing. And in those 40 years, obviously, you you learn a thing or two when you do something for 40 years. And so a bunch of the stuff that I've learned, I've, I've condensed into some little cool hacks. And I actually have a spreadsheet with well over 100 of these. I don't know if I'll do something with all that data someday, but I'm going to give you 15 of them that... I just think really translate well into an audio show. So that's what we'll be doing today. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. I'll tell you what, I love fishing. You know what I don't love? Clutter. And the reason I don't love clutter is not because I'm like all anal retentive or anything and I hate clutter Like because I hate clutter. I, I actually hate clutter because I am not the most organized guy in the world. I really am not. I'm really great at formulating organizational plans, execution. I'm the guy that, like, you know, I get all my tools organized, and then two days later after I did a project, my tools are everywhere. right? So if it can be cluttered, I will clutter it. So one of the ways I've decluttered my life is I got rid of my billfold, and it's a small thing. I got rid of my billfold. I replaced it with the Ridge Wallet. I started carrying it. I will never go back to carrying a billfold again. Not only does it protect me from identity theft, but it helps me minimize, and I'm the kind of guy that needs help minimizing. If you check out Ridge Wallet, you'll see why it is one of the best ways in the world to become a minimalist and still have everything you need when you need it, when you're out and about conducting commerce and things like that, and not get ripped off by people that are using like RFID sniffing technology that you can buy the equipment for 120 bucks on eBay for. Check them out today, RidgeWallet.com. Remember, members of the MSB, you guys get a discount. On everything you buy from Ridge Wallet. And they all just have great wallets. They have some other really great stuff too. So check it all out again, RidgeWallet.com. Next other day, Backwoods Home Magazine. Do you ever wonder how I know so much shit? I mean, really, have you ever sat back and went, like, how does this dude know so many things about so many things? Well, doing the show for 13 and a half years now, 14, it'll be, it's going to be 14 freaking years. Oh my God. Uh, so 13 or 14 years I, I don't think I'm having trouble with calendars right now I guess because I've made some changes But it's been, been a long time I've been doing this show And I learned a lot doing it You learn more teaching, I, I think, than people realize uh, But the foundational knowledge That a lot of this stuff comes to you with Is growing up a country boy Growing up a homesteader when no one called it a homesteader Hunting, fishing And reading Backwoods Home Magazine I first found Backwoods Home Magazine When I got out of the Army in 1993 I've been a subscriber ever since so when they asked to the sponsor the show, it was a no-brainer to say yes. How I mean, At that point, it had been two decades of reading the magazine as a subscriber and a paying customer. So, of course, I'm willing to recommend you check it out as well. You can learn more at BackwoodsHome.com. All right, so let's dig into this. I just want to start out with a little bit of background on young Jack Spooker. And I mean young. I mean, Jack Spurker was so young, he was still blonde. Like, those of you who have seen pictures of me or videos of me recently, you know, my hair is kind of a, a sandy brown, dark sandy brown I was a little kid. I mean, a little kid. I was like flaxen blonde. And I'm talking like, you know, when I still had one digit next to my age, seven, eight, nine years old. And I really idolized my grandfather on my dad's side and my dad's brother, his younger brother, a, a gentleman named Mark. Who was always out hunting and fishing? Both of those guys, and my great uncle Pete, and other guys I've talked to about, uh, like where I, where my family's from in Pennsylvania. People hunt and fish because it adds to their their table and, and to their deep freezer. It's not just a pastime. It's a way that people actually helped extend uh, the, the the you know the the meals for their family. It mattered, and. To me as a little kid and I'm talking like when we moved to Florida I was I went into kindergarten that year so you' only like five. I just wanted to be like them. My father was a workaholic and I know that some people will have a hard time hearing me put it this way but my mother was basically useless and so when we moved to Jacksonville, all I had to lean on was my grandmother and my grandfather on my mom's side they were both wonderful people, but they were both still working and it was the 1980s, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Kids had a lot more freedom. By the time I was eight years old, you kind of were in that world where kids just went out and did stuff all day long, and if nothing bad happened, nobody asked any questions, and everybody was fine. You know, People didn't sit around worrying your kid was going to get abducted, even though it was totally possible back then. Kids just had freedom. And we had moved into an apartment complex directly across University Boulevard, from Jacksonville University. The place looks like a total pit now. I don't remember what it's called now, but you can look it up on Google Maps. If you want to see where I'm talking about, you go to Google Maps and look up Jacksonville University, and you'll see an apartment complex right across the main drag, University Boulevard from it. And in the middle of that apartment complex, you'll see a lakes about two acres, if I remember right. And that's why it was called Fountain Lakes, even though it was Fountain Lake, uh, because there was a fountain in the middle of it. And I grew up fishing that pond. That was the first place I had where I could just go out the door and go fishing. And if you look across the street where Jacksonville University is, you'll see a boat dock in the St. Johns River. And I wasn't allowed to go there alone. That, was, that river is a dangerous river, especially when the tides change. It'll sweep away grown-ass men who are strong swimmers. It, it's that kind of place. My grandfather, when he had the time, since he worked there, he was the, the chief of security for the university, and he, so we could go there and fish. We'd go down there and fish and crab on that. And, and right in that little space is where this all started. But it was that pond that was everything to me. Because with a can of corn or a pack of hot dogs or a few worms that we dug up under the pine straw or whatever, we, we could go down there as kids and we could fish. And when I started fishing, there was no Internet. There were TV shows, but they were like the very, very old TV shows, like the very first shows with like Bill Dance. And you didn't learn a lot from them because they were all about catching bass on rubber worms. That's pretty much all it was, was bass on rubber worms. See, so only learned a little bit. There was a, a show that came on weekends called Out the Door. And people would call in and talk to the guy. And it was just a very low-rent PBS show. And I, I don't remember the guy's name. I don't remember any, anything. But I always remember him when he would take a call. He'd go, this is out the door and you're on the air. And I'd watch that. And I managed with Finagle to get, you know, bought for me sports of field, field and stream and stuff like that. And I learned how to fish from books I found in the school library, which were 50 years old at the time sports magazines and a PBS special and for a time I tied I tied fish hooks on like overhand knot like two overhand knots and pull it tight and some dude that was fishing on one of the little docks at this lake one day showed me how to do a, a basic cinch knot and I had to learn for myself in 99% of the things that I did and as we as I grew up, we eventually moved to another apartment complex it didn't have a pond, but there was one close to it that did that I could walk to. Now you're talking like I'm old, like 11. <laughs> and there were swamps and there were creeks and there was that, that same river, at different places we could access it. And I had a friend whose dad was a, uh, kind of a bigwig at a golf course, so we were able to go fish at some of the ponds, not all of the ponds, but some of the ponds at the golf course and Bessie would be left alone. And we were walking any place we couldn't get to on a bicycle. And I did that until we moved to Pennsylvania when I was 14. And then the trout streams and all. And then there was another pond. It was about an acre and a half two acre pond. It was only a few, uh, maybe about a mile and a half up the road. And I would push my bike up the hill because it was too damn steep to, to walk up there. But I'd take all my shit and learn how to make a compact kit so I could have like two rods and everything I needed and all. And I'd push my bike up that hill. Until I got to the flat spot at the top and I'd ride about the last half mile, but then it was easy to get home because I could just, you know, coast down the hill to get home. Sometimes I get home at three or four o'clock in the morning. I was a dedicated fisherman. And the reason I'm telling you all this is one, I think it's good that y'all know who I am and where I come from as, as a whole, especially new listeners that maybe haven't listened to this show much before. But so also you can understand where a lot of the stuff that I'm about to share with you came from. It didn't come from sitting on Amazon and looking for the next best solution. Though some of the things that I will recommend to you today, I'll give you a link on Amazon where you can find it. There are some things that are gear and tackle that you can buy. But a lot of this was more techniques and, and true hacks that came from necessity. And so we'll start out with kind of my first one. I call it the rubber band trick, and that's what it was for years. It was the rubber band trick. But in my notes, I call invariance thereof. There's a lot of ways to do this. And the way it started out was, I, I, this is one I did pick up sort of from the adults around me. By this point, I had like that uncle I mentioned. He would take me fishing. Some of his friends would take me fishing, et cetera. And we used to go fishing, and we do a lot of bank fishing. And you, know, you set up two or three rods a person. Set them up in a little Y-stick or a rod holder or on a a log or something like that so that the fish can take the line out, cast it out, wait on the bottom, that basic thing that everybody does. And then the thing was you wanted that fish to be able to take that line. Again, we were not worried about making sure we got a perfect corner of the mouth hook so we could catch and release. If it was edible, we took it home and we ate it. So we weren't really worried about the fish swallowing the hook. If fish swallowed the hook, that's just great. We'll get the hook back and reuse it after we clean it. I mean, that was kind of the mindset. And so what people would do is they would open the bale on a spinning rod. So you just kind of open it so the line will freely flow out. Now, of course, if you do that, you can't keep the line tight so you can see a strike. And when the wind blows, you got to mess. So they take a little pebble or a pop top from a can and put it on the line out to the side so that the line would stay taunt, But when the fish took it, it could pull it loose and it would run. And I always thought that was a pretty good little hack, but my little teenage mind started thinking, well, you got to you got to look for it, you got to find it. Sometimes it blows off, it, you know. Sometimes you need something heavier. Uh, and what I ended up doing was just take the reel off the rod, and then take a rubber band, and in front of the reel, like double, triple, however many times it took to keep the rubber band taunt on the on the on the handle of the fishing rod in front of the, the reel. And then you pull that line into the rubber band, get it set the way you want so it's taunt on the reel and taunt on the line on the bait end, and then open the bail. And then if you had it really windy, you pulled a little bit more line, and if it was nice and calm, you just barely set it under there. And when a fish took it, it would just pull it out, and the line would run, and then you'd pick it up and catch your fish. And this was something that, after about a year of doing it, I started seeing people doing it all over the place. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm the person that kind of created it. Now... This can be done with uh, Velcro zip ties, which is in the T-SPAS catalog as well. Um, and now we have bait feeder reels, where they have basically this technology built into the reel. But I'm not going to get rid of all my old reels, and I'll never stop using this little hack. And, and one of the things to think about, people say, well, i got to take the reel off or whatever. You don't have to, like, if you've already, if you got your rod it's already rigged up and ready to go and you want to do this, it's not like you have to cut the line and retie everything. You just take the reel off for a second and leave the line running through the eyes of the rod. Put the rubber band on and throw the reel back on. It's a really great, simple, useful little hack, and I came up with it as a teenager. What's cool about it? I used to do a lot of fishing at that pond up the street from my uh, my grandparents' house in the dark. The ones I talk about coming home at you know, four o'clock in the morning or whatever. I would set my rods up and. At night, I'd pull that line a little bit further back in, and when you were sitting there alone in the quiet, you could hear when a fish pulled that line out of that rubber band, you'd hear it. I mean, you'd hear it almost every time. So I could sit there eat my little can of beans and, and weenies and a beer I stole from the old man, and I'd hear that line go, and more often than not end up with a, a channel catfish. And so before I go on, I realized during that little talk that I forgot to tell you our quote of the day today. It's by a guy named Jeffrey Fisher, even though it not really have anything directly to do about fishing. But Jeffrey Fisher said, in cities, no one is quiet, but many are lonely. In the country, people are quiet, but few are lonely. And what Fisher meant by that is that country people take care of each other. That in small towns, rural communities, etc., people have friends with them when they need it. I selected it for today, though, to tell you that I think there's a there's a value in being quiet and having that quiet time. And I have to say, I don't think I've ever sat with a rod in my hand or even sitting around a fire by myself in complete darkness, damn near, with fishing rods and felt alone. I think that not only can that quote be taken that we take care of each other more in tight-knit rural communities... But it can also be taken that when you have purpose in your life, you don't need people around you to not feel lonely. That One of the ways that we combat loneliness by being around people is by trying to give our lives a sense of purpose. It's really a lack of sense of purpose that creates loneliness more than actually being alone. And so maybe one of the reasons I've always loved fishing is because I've I've never felt alone even when I was. Uh, Next up. Same place is where this one comes from pinning down your rod when you're bank fishing and so I think most people are familiar with what I mean when I say a y stick but if you're not you you find a brush or a shrub somewhere that's got a you know a good length to it it's got some good you know maybe as big around as your index finger or so and you cut it off and then a the first y in it where you got a split in the branches you kind of cut both sides but you stick that in the ground. And that's like a rod holder. You set your rod base on the ground, and you put your rod in there, and that's where you can do the rubber band trick or whatever. Well, this pond I used to fish in, I didn't have to do that very much because there was this tree that fell, and we had hacked all the limbs off it so it was nice and smooth, and there was a little point that I used to fish on. And you could set about five rods, and I never had that many. I'd have two or three at the most with me when I would go up to this place. You could set your rods, that first big eye on that that log, and then you didn't need the Y-Stick. But what happened one day is I'm up there fishing or and I'm a teenager here, right? And there's these two girls I knew from school that were walking around up there. So being a teenage boy and seeing some teenage girls, I went and started talking to them, and I'm trying to work my mojo, and it's not going anywhere. But you're, you're a teenage kid, and there's some girls around while well, you're fishing. I mean, that's unusual, So I had about a 30-minute conversation with them. Again, it went nowhere. But when they eventually left and I went back to my rods, one of my rods was almost in the water. It had been pulled over that log, and the only thing that stopped it was the reel itself. And the fish had taken every inch of line off that rod fortunately, this place wasn't too big. And when it got to the end of it, that's a lot of line out. It just really quit trying because it probably could have snapped the line at that point. So I reeled in as much as I could before I started fighting the fish because I figured if it takes any drag, I'm sunk here. And I was able to land a fish. It was a nice-sized channel cat fish. But I realized at that point that if you're not paying 100% attention to them rods, that rods can go in the water. So you take that same Y-stick. So basically now you've got like... Think of it almost like a two-pointed spear type of thing you're talking about. And you can actually pin the base of the rod to the ground. Like what you want to do is go right past the handle, right where the handle steps down to where the uh, the screw part is that holds the reel on, where that differential is, is where that stick can get jammed in there. And so a very simple thing of just pinning a rod to the ground if you're not going to be able to pay 100% attention to it. Again, with bait feeder reels and all, it's not really as important, but that was something that came out of place. Another thing that I learned in this time in my life was sight fishing for bass. And there was a really simple way to do it using the most common bait known to man. But what got me was that, you know, people would tell me, again, uncles and stuff like that, well, there's this pond over here by this apartment complex or pond on the side of the road. And you can walk around and see largemouth bass just cruising the shorelines. And I guess people have thrown so many baits at them, they won't touch it. And I've thrown you know, lures and worms and everything at them, and they just won't touch it. And so, of course, I'd go there and be like, well, I don't catch these bass. And it turned out they were right. These bass just seemed like maybe they would spook easily. Even when you didn't spook them, they wouldn't take a bait or whatever. But eventually, I came up with a way to catch them. And this can be translated into a lot of different methods of fishing, even if you're not doing what's called sight fishing. What I realized was, number one, You had to approach these fish where your shadow wouldn't touch the water. That's like the number one rule of sight fishing is your shadow cannot touch the water. So you would have to figure out which approach, which direction to be moving on that bank when you saw those fish. Number two, use just a basic worm, your night crawler, hole. Hook size, depending on the size of the fish, four, two, one-aught, two-aught, basic bait holder. No weight whatsoever. And the way to get these fish to strike, and it worked nine times out of ten, was to cast past the fish, reel the worm so that it came in front of the fish, and as soon as that fish moved in any way that it was responding to that bait, stop and let it float toward the bottom. And nine times out of ten, that fish would go and hail that worm. And I'd go to these places that all these guys that had all this experience that caught fish everywhere else and tried to catch these fish, it'd said they won't take anything, won't touch a bait. And I could catch them night and day, left and right. And I did it with other baits and they were effective and not, you know, like not as effective. It was just a freaking nightcrawler was like the number one bait to do this with. I did it with, you know, minnows and shiners. I did it with hellgrimites, which are just candy to most bass, what have you. But nothing beat. Just a live nightcrawler. And I think the way to hook it was incredibly important as well. You're wanting a big, nice, like, you know, good-looking worm. You don't want some little wimpy-ass Walmart worm. And we used to feed them a a, a a food, and I don't even know if you can get it anymore, but it was called magic worm food. And we'd keep them in a little styrofoam worm thing where you could open both sides of it so when they were on the bottom you could get to them and we feed them this magic worm food and i don't know what the hell was in it but it would make these worms like really tough like hard and it would you'd end up with that collar on them getting like a blaze looking orange like a really bright copper orange and you take that hook and just one time no double triple hooking just through that collar about halfway through so you get as much worm around the hook you know as, as much meat around the hook as possible And that hook just laying out. And if you did anything else, I think it's because those those fish had so many things thrown at them, they would just not bite. But it worked. It worked like clockwork. And I've been able to do this in Florida, Pennsylvania, and Texas. That's a pretty good geographic range. And mostly with largemouth bass. But I found about any game fish that this approach works is they like to hit bait on the fall. And this this translates to a lot of things, even stuff that's maybe more active than just let it fall. So, for instance, we were fishing in Florida recently, and for all the times I've been fishing, I've never done what they call jig and shrimp, which you take a little bitty jig head, like a quarter-ounce jig head, or maybe up to a half-ounce jig head, and about a half-piece of shrimp, dead shrimp on it, and you fish it like a jig. And we were just killing um, speck trout and ladyfish, and and, uh, pompano, and I mean, just like, but it was really, it's the same but different, man, in the words of Tommy Chong. You throw that line out and let it hit the ground and then give it like a two-flip, kind of like jig-jig up with a crank of the fishing reel and get it a couple feet off off the bottom and then let it fall forward. And as it fell forward, you reel back to it so you're not pulling it anymore, but you're not letting slacken. So as soon as that fish struck, you would feel it And you did it over and over and over. I had my daughter-in-law out doing this. Never really fished in her life. Last time she fished, she said she was 13 years old. And it took her about five times of watching me do it to get it down. And she was slamming fish. But it was the same reason. Nine out of those ten bites came on that fall. And if you weren't in touch with the line on the fall, you'd miss the fish. But if you were in touch with the line, you could get a good hook set most of the time. But it's that same thing, fish hitting that falling bait. There's something about that bait falling, and I think what it is is a natural predator response in some critters is to go to the bottom. And that slow fall is like, oh, I got you. They lock on it. kicks in that predatory response. Um, So the sight fishing for bass, but that can be translated to a lot of other lures, baits, and techniques of using that fall. The next one is what I call stick bobber. Now, when I say that to people, sometimes I think I'm talking about a form of a fishing float or bobber. In other words, a long, skinny float. Those are great. I could talk about those for 10 minutes, and the advantages of those over like a round bobber or something like that, ways to make them more sensitive, etc. But it's not what I mean. When I say a stick bobber, I mean you go in the the, the brush, you find a piece of dead wood, the smallest size that will do what you need, and you break a stick off, you know, about maybe as long as your index finger, a little longer, a little short, depending on what you're doing. You take your knife and you cut a groove into each side of that stick. And then you take your line and you pull it into the groove and at whatever distance from the bait you want that float to be. And people say, well, if you do that, it's going to fall off. It's a stick. Go make another one. It's no big deal. But I'm going to tell you how I ended up figuring out to do this. I was fishing a creek that was loaded with brook trout. And, I, you know, this is one of these things where I would ride my bike as far as I could, lock it to a tree, and then walk up the creek. I'd wear old tennis shoes and a pair of cutoffs, you know, and, and wade. Because it's summertime, so you didn't want to wear, wear hip waders. You had to drag with you and anything like that. So you don't have a lot of stuff. Maybe you have one little fishing bag on your side. And, you know, maybe some worms or something like that for bait and some basic lures and what have you. Very, very backwoods old-school, minimalist fishing. So you don't have all your stuff with you. And I came around this this turn, and there was a really shallow part of the creek, and it hit a bend in the creek. And But that bend in the creek just was like you could not cast into it, and if you got close enough where maybe you could, you're going to spook the fish. And there were trout raising up and taking something off the surface in the back of that bend, and there's just no way to get a line back in there. And I remember thinking to myself, if I could float something back into that eddy, I would be able to catch those fish. And for the life of me, I'm digging through that back and I've got no floats, no bobbers, no nothing, and it hits. Get a stick. I'm going to give you a bonus with this one. So I get a stick, and I put a worm on And I float his ass back in there, and he kind of slows down. It's kind of a little eddy backwater back in there, and it kind of floats around a little bit and floats out. And I do this over and over, and I'm watching the fish rise and take something off the surface. I don't know what. They wouldn't touch that damn worm. And I tried running that worm six inches under that stick, and I tried running a foot and a half under that stick, and they would not touch it. And I was thinking, damn, if I just had some worms, Because clearly they're eating some kind of a bug here. But I ain't got none. So I just thought about summertime Pennsylvania. You know we have a lot of grasshoppers, and there were railroad tracks along where this creek was. So I went up on the tracks and, and, and caught a few grasshoppers. Just walk along, small hook, pulled their wings off and their back legs off. Figured that might make them look a little more appetizing. Ran that hook and that collar right behind their head and used that stick bobber and floated them down there. And until, I don't think there was a trout left in that hole by the time I was done. Because as soon as those damn things had float past them there, they were slamming it. And that was improvising and using just what was around you. So the lesson I want you to take from that is not just the thing, but always using your tools, looking around you, what do you have? On that note, I've dealt with fish, especially trout, where there's a hatch on, and people talk about how challenging fly fishing is, and it can be. It can also be easy. It all depends. If you have trout rising to take mayflies, and you have a fly rod, and you're any way decent with it, and you have a you know a dry fly that looks like a mayfly, they're going to eat it. And you can throw 10 different things at them, bait and lures, and they won't touch it because they kind of get zoned in on this. And there's times where being able to float something like a dry fly or a grasshopper or a mealworm and be able to do things with a spinning rod that typically you would only be able to do with a fly rod is a really good thing to be able to do. Well, there's a thing called a fly bubble. It's designed exactly for that. It's basically a small, clear float. I'll find one on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes today. And it's got a little hook I screwed into both sides of it. And this lets you take things like a dry fly or a very small, lightweight, floating, or even sinking piece of bait... And present it to a fish in a very stealthy way where a normal bobber or float might spook them. So that's, that's my, my fifth hack for you is the fly bubble. I learned about this. I was fishing. We had a lot of when I was a kid called fishing rodeos at a pond that was at an apartment complex my grandfather lived in. The one that I spent time with in Florida. He moved up there, uh, after my grandmother on that side died. He was actually from Pennsylvania as well. And there were fish hitting flies. And kids are throwing freaking garlic bait and worms and minnows and spinners and everything. And they're following the spinners, but they weren't hitting them. They were hitting some sort of little black fly. And I looked in this tackle box that I kind of had pilfered from one of my uncles. And I saw that. And I wasn't even sure that's what it was for. But I'm like, I damn sure think it'll work for this. And I found a little black dry fly. And I won that fishing rodeo. I think I was 14 or 15 years old. I think I got the the, the four biggest fish and the first, it was a four fish limit on it. And you got prizes for like the biggest fish, the biggest four fish, the fastest four fish and some other things. I got the biggest four and the fastest four using that fly bubble. And it stuck with me that this was a way to add diversity to your kit. And they're, you know, a buck or two a piece. You keep a couple of those in your kit. That way you can keep some different looking dry flies and other things like that. Because another thing that I was able to do with these really, really well, I mentioned before a thing called a mealworm. Most of y'all know what a mealworm is. So you take a really small hook. I'm talking like a 12 or even a 14 size hook. And you hook a mealworm through the the tail. And you use one of those fly bubbles. You put about an 18-inch leader off of it. And that mealworm will sink. But if you pump a little bit of air into him with like a hypodermic syringe, he'll float. And there were places where trout, again, you sight fishing, you see trout, they wouldn't touch anything. You floated or drifted, depending on what they wanted surface or below surface. A mealworm by them, they'd hammer it. And if you used a regular bob or a float, they saw it a lot more clearly. And it would, these were fish that had been maybe caught and released or hooked a few times. They were kind of educated for fish. And that stealthy little fly bubble would catch fish when nothing else would. So it's another good little thing to put in your your mental box, right? And maybe your physical box as well. How about this? Have you ever had fishing line on a reel? And it just won't lay smooth. It's got twists in it. It's got memory in it. But it really isn't ready to be replaced. Right? It It, it needs to be replaced, but you don't want to replace it. And it's not got... It's not got kinks or wear. It's plenty strong. It just won't lay right on the reel. Hot water is your friend. Get a pot or a tea kettle or something like that and heat water up till it's, you know, steaming hot. Not quite boiling, but steaming hot. And pour it over that line. And even in your own backyard, like throw something on it for weight, like a bobber or something with no hooks or so anything. You just cast it out and reel it in and kind of put some tension on it, you might have to do it twice. It'll completely restore that line. It'll take all that memory out of it. It'll lay beautifully in your reel. There is a spray you can buy that does the same thing, and I think it's better because you can use it on the fly if you start to get memory in your reel. Um, But the fact that it can be done with just hot water is pretty damn cool. And if you do it, it will also extend life of line because when it stays all frazzled up like I'm talking about, you end up with problems. Now, there's a lot of things that mitigate this. One is making sure that your spool is adjusted properly on your reel. So on a spinning reel, and again, with spinning reel, I'm talking about open face. You've got a spool, and a line goes on. you got a, a bale that runs around the outside of it, your most common fishing reel is what I'm talking about here. If you're reeling your line, in, you end up with, like, the line more forward, like it's thicker in the forward part of the reel than the rear part of the reel, or the other way in the rear... But not in the front, so it kind of it's cone shaped. You're gonna end up with a lot of issues with your line, and what's wrong with that is the spool's not adjusted right. And usually when you buy a fishing reel, you'll see there's some extra little washers in there. And so, you can either move the spool a little forward or a little back by adding and mo- removing washers. And so I'm talking about you, you unscrew the drag, right, all the way till you can pull the spool off, and underneath the spool, you'll see a little star-shaped washer, and that's the one that actually manages your drag. That's when you pull a line off and the reel's closed, and you hear it go like rip, 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 that's, that's drag. And The tighter you do it, the harder that is, and the looser, the looser, and you adjust that based on what you're doing, the weight of your line, how you're fishing, what you're fighting, all that. But then you might see a little washer above that, and that pushes that, that spool a little further forward. And so when you get a new reel and it, has got those extra washers in there. That's what that's for. So that's one way to mitigate that problem in the first place. The other thing that I, that I use now almost exclusively is braided line. And since I started using braided line, I don't really have any issues with this anymore. But if you're still using mono, that's one way you can fix kind of a boogly-dub line. Uh, next up, snails and snap, snap swivels. A lot of people hate this. Um, And I do, too, at certain times. When fish are really spooky, when fish are really hard to get to strike, I'll lose this technique. And I'll go to a straight leader tied to the braided line, or if I'm using mono or fluorocarbon, uh, nothing, right? But what I'm talking about here is on your main line, you put a snap swivel on which is exactly what it sounds like, a little swivel, a little snap on it. And what you want to use is the smallest one for the application of work, and that's a good rule in fishing overall. You, if you're going to put a weight on the line, you need the smallest weight that will do the job for what you're trying to get done. If you're trying to get a bait down deep, you need the smallest weight that will make his little ass go down there if he's trying to swim back up. If you're trying to control water in a current, you want the smallest weight that will give you the speed through the current that you want. You want the least amount of stuff on the line. That's why people don't like the snap swivel issue. But snap swivels and snell hooks. Whether you time yourself or you buy them, a snell hook is a, just a hook that's pre-tied on a leader. And on one end of the leader, you either have a little straight swivel, so it's just a swivel without the snap, or you have a loop tied. And what that lets you do is you undo that snap swivel, put that leader on, boom, you're done. You got a hook, a new hook on. And I'm a big believer that the more time your line spends in the water, the more fish you're going to catch. And the more time you spend re-rigging without your line in the water, the less fish you're going to catch. With the exception that sometimes fish are real finicky and you need to go as stealth as possible. But a lot of times this just doesn't matter. So my favorite way to rig for most of the types of fishing that I do is either a hook and no weight or a hook on the main line side of that snap swivel that's a sliding weight right so you got a weight and that weight comes up against that swivel and then you got your leader down to your hook and that way when that line's sitting out there and that fish takes the line the line pulls through that that weight and it doesn't feel the weight of the of, of the lead right and you feel the fish directly and you have a lot more sensitivity you can strike well if you're using this technique, there are weights that are called the snap lock weight they have now. And they're like little sandbag casting weights. It looks like a little big sandbag. And it's got a little plastic thing on the top of it, and it's got a snap in it. And so you want to add weight, you just take the line, it snaps on. Kind of like a carabiner. Now, if you go to just take that off, just so you decide you don't want the weight on or you just kind of pull it off, especially with braided line, it's going to jack your line up. But if you take anything small enough like the tip of a forcep and you push on that snap you can pull them right off so you can put them on and off you can go from a lighter weight to a heavier weight and back down with this approach and then that way you have a swivel you have your snail hook and if the fish are stealing the bait and let's say you think you need a smaller hook it's literally seconds to swap to a smaller size hook or to go to some sort of a lure or something another way you can do this is you run a slightly larger snap swivel at the end of your main line, and that's where your um, your snell hook leader goes. But before you do that, you put a very small snap swivel on your main line, and you just want to make sure that the eye hole of that snap swivel is small enough that it's going to be stopped by the main snap swivel that it actually is attached to where your leader goes and where your kind of terminal tackle is. With that little snap swivel now, you can put a weight on that snap swivel and you don't have to use a snap lock. You can use any weight that that snap swivel is big enough to attach to. You just have to be careful with this it doesn't, so it doesn't cause you tr- uh, trouble like tangles and stuff. Sometimes in some conditions, when you're using this approach of a snap swivel to a leader and a weight above it, and that weight comes all the way down to that snap swivel, you can end up with tangles. This happens a lot with surf fishing and things like that. A very simple way... To change that calculus quickly is to simply take a split shot that's big enough that, that 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 weight won't slide over it, and put a split shot on your main line about an inch above that snap, that terminal snap swivel, so that the weight only comes down to that that split shot weight, which is the little weight you crimp on, and that'll prevent tangles. So I'm giving you some bonuses here. And those are all little things you learn over time. And even if it doesn't make sense, as you use it in the field, you'll figure it out it'll make sense for you. On split shots, again, this is in my notes, but this is something I, I you know, feel very strongly about. There's two types of split shots, and one will be called removable, and one will be called snagless. The removable ones will have, for lack of a better term, ears on the backside. So they look like a BB with a slot in it, made out of lead. You put it on a line, you crimp it down. If you fish, you know what I'm talking about. Don't use your teeth through this. I did as a kid, it's stupid. Don't do it. And then the ones that are considered snagless, they don't have any ears on them, they're just round. They look like a BB when you when you crimp them shut. They're very difficult to take back off the line. Growing up in the seventies and eighties, we had a word for those split shots. Amongst you know myself, my friends, my uncles, my grandparents, all that, we call them communist. They're communist because once you put the damn thing on, if you needed to take it off quickly, you were cutting the line and retying a hook. So they, they were they were not not good for shit. Right, communism and cheap junk had kind of went together back then. The ones with the ears, you take a pair of needle nose or forceps or whatever, and you squeeze those ears on the backside. It opens back up. You take it off. So, if you throw on like a quarter round split shot and you decide that's too heavy, or you're going to, you know, all of a sudden you see one of these fish that you want to do that kind of drop slow thing with no weight on it, too, it's a couple seconds to get that weight off. So, always use the removable split shots or the ones with ears, call them what you want to, not the communist ones. The reason being is the supposed suppose snagless nature of the ones without ears. I haven't found that they get in rocks and snag any less than the ones with ears. I really haven't, so there you go. Uh, next, I, Ziploc bags are your friend. There's a million things to do with them, but I'm going to tell you one of the best things you can do with them. You get small size Ziploc bags, and you take your, your, your Snell leaders that I'm talking about here, and you kind of coil them up in a nice loop, and you put one in each bag. And inside that bag, put a little piece of paper, a piece of card cardstock, whatever, and write what it is. Number four. So you know what size hook it is. And then you take a bunch of those little bags and you take one big ziplock bag and you put all the little bags inside the big Ziploc bag. This is incredibly cheap, right? And it's re- they're almost infinitely reusable. And when you need a new hook and you need a size 2 hook, instead of digging through a bunch of shit and trying to untangle that Snell hook out of that pre-made package it came in, or if you, you t- like I tie my own Snells now, and the reason I tie my own Snells is... I have plenty of free time sitting around at home that I can tie some hooks here and there. When I'm on the bank fishing, I want my rod in the water as much as possible. So I'll tie here and just put on a snap swivel there. You put it in that bag. You open the bag. You look. Okay, there's a number four. You pull it out. You open the bag. You pull it out. It's not tangled. It's not twisted. It goes on. Done. You don't need any special fancy tackle or anything to do this. And again, you can just reuse those bags over and over and over again. If you're taking a hook off and it's still a good hook wind it up right if you have a little pen or something in your bag cross off the number and if you know what it is put it in there or just fold fold a little piece of paper or whatever in half when you shove that in there and you know that's an old one you need to check on later see if it's so good to use on another note another bonus if you fish in salt water and you fish for a day or two and you're using snap swivels hooks etc i don't care how good everything looks replace them at the end of at least the second day, if not the first. Salt water corrodes things very, very quickly, and it sucks to have a beautiful fish on and have something like a snap-sibble simply break because you've used it for three or four days in a row. Ask me how I know. Um, next up, this is one I've only done a little bit yet with so far, but it works really well, and it works so much better than I thought it would. Salting bait, especially shrimp. I learned this on youtube well I, I i checked it out on youtube i don't remember where i first heard it but i'm like that doesn't seem like it'll work because i've bought you know bait when you buy like bait that's like cut make like shad or something like that in a bag in the store that's shelf stable that shit has never worked for me i've never caught anything on it so i kind of felt like this would be the same thing but it isn't so salting shrimp is exactly what it sounds like you take a Tupperware ba- uh, container or a Ziploc bag or something like that. You put some salt in it. You throw your shrimp on it, and you, I mean, it, this is means a lot of salt, but and salt's cheap, so it, it doesn't really matter. But enough to pull most of the moisture out and absorb the moisture. If it's not enough salt, you'll end up with a pool of shrimp goo, and the shrimp are sitting in the goo. This is not what you want. You want to actually pull the moisture, and it, it, it's almost like making shrimp jerky. But not you don't want to quite get that far along with it. So once it's gotten tough, you remove it from the salt and put it in a bag without salt. So it doesn't stay on salt permanently. It usually takes like a day or two at the most to do. What you end up with, if you've ever fished with shrimp, it can be really soft and really easy for the fish to steal it. Especially when you're fishing, like you're surf fishing for like whiting and stuff like that or, or ocean perch or whatever, uh, that pick at the bait instead of just take it. And so I I heard, I don't even remember where I heard about it, but I checked out on YouTube, and the best video I saw was a little Asian dude, and his channel's called Hey Skipper, and he was fishing like under, like in a little boat, like a little john boat, under like some sort of bridges and stuff, and I'm going to say he's up around like Baltimore, somewhere like that, somewhere up in the northeast. And he just went out, and he had fresh dead shrimp and salted shrimp. And he just fished, exact same rig, Exact same way, casting up under the, right against the pylons for these little fish. And he hooked about three to one with the salted shrimp. And it looked like he might have got a little less hits, but a lot more hookups. So I'm not going to say this is going to work everywhere all the time, but what I am going to say is when it, when the fish are hitting enough for it to work, that bait stays on a hell of a lot better, and I do mean a hell of a lot better. A hell of a lot better. And this is also a way that if you've bought bait, you bought some shrimp, you've gone fishing, you haven't used it all, you don't want to throw it away, and you bring it home. If you've used bait for a day, and you bring it home, and I don't almost care what it is, but especially shrimp, and you put it in the freezer... And a few weeks or a few months later, you take that stuff out and you defrost it and you go out and fish with it again. It's like fishing with mush. It will not stay on the hook for crap. Now, if you're fishing for catfish and they're really aggressive and they're just taking it, it won't matter as much. But if you're dealing with any sort of pick and peck from your fish, you're going to have a lot. You just, you might as well just not even do it. You might as well throw it away and buy new bait. Salting it will preserve it. So you can use it, and then you can freeze or refrigerate it. And the amount of salt we're talking about, I should say the duration of salting, it's not going to be completely self-stable where, like, you can throw it on a shelf in the in the garage. You're going to have to refrigerate it at minimum or go ahead and freeze it. And refrigeration seems to work really well for me with this. Where I have found that this is really popular with saltwater fishermen. I don't think it has anything to do with salt, but saltwater fishermen. Because it's one of the most popular bait. For saltwater fishermen, when you can't get live bait, is cut shrimp. Everything eats it. But I have found that bullhead catfish and channel catfish love shrimp. However, most of the places we fish for those, in little ponds and parks and stuff like that, they have a lot of bluegills, small catfish, stuff like that, that will peck that bait off. Salted shrimp works beautifully in those situations. Because it just toughens that bait up enough to stay on better. If you're not getting bites, I totally suggest going with a non-salted bait and seeing if they're just not active enough and it's just not quite attractive enough for them in that. But I'll tell you another thing. Any kind of a good fish attraction like a shad or shrimp scent that you spray on, that will up the game of that stuff a lot. I'll also throw in another bonus for you. I gave fish bites a real try this time out in Florida. It worked beautifully. I caught some beautiful pompano uh, I even caught a snook on fish bites. This is a prepared bait. You buy it. It comes in strips. And it's basically got like a little piece of gauze in the middle, and then it's formed around it. And it's uh, a synthetic bait that, you know, comes in like clams, shrimp, squid, et cetera, and um, sand flea for Pompano and all. And it's basically they've determined what the feeding factors are, is what the, the guy that developed it called them, the things that cause fish to feed. And they've built it into the bait. And I was skeptical. It worked really good. Um, and it's also very tough for the fish to steal. I've tried the shrimp version of that for catfish. It's worked fairly well for bullheads and channel catfish. Not as good as shrimp, like real shrimp, specifically even salted shrimp. So there's all more information there for you to do what you want with. Uh, next, um, let's talk about real quick the the best cheap dead shrimp you can get your hands on, right? Like you want a shrimp to go fishing with. If you go to a bait shop that sells shrimp and stuff like that, they'll usually sell you a little package of bait shrimp for about 4 bucks, and it's about six ounces of shrimp, if that. And they're head-on, and the head of a dead shrimp is not generally the best bait. So that's not really that usable. They generally have been frozen and refrozen to where they're kind of mushy. And uh, they're expensive when you look at it that way. If you go to, like, Walmart or Publix or something like that and you go to the seafood counter, you can usually buy the cheapest reasonably sized shrimp that they have for less than bait shrimp. And a lot of times it's either only been frozen once, so if you're going to go ahead and use it right away, it's fine. It's not going to be mushy yet. Or sometimes it's even never been frozen. And a lot of times you can find shrimp like that for four to five bucks a pound versus three to five dollars a pack for a quarter of the amount if you're lucky. So when I'm going fishing, shore fishing, or if I'm going to the pond and I'm fishing for catfish or whatever and I want shrimp, I go to the store. And the frozen shrimp at Walmart is remarkably good for fishing. I can't come on on it that much for uh, human consumption, it's flash frozen. And that means that it basically goes from the boat to, it's usually frozen on the boat and it never is defrosted. Or it goes from the boat to the freezer. And it's frozen incredibly quickly, and that keeps them from getting that mushy consistency. And it is dirt cheap compared to bait shrimp. So if you're looking for shrimp to use for catfish or shore fishing, go to the grocery store, not the bait store, unless you're buying live shrimp. Uh, next up, cheap live bait. Let's say you need live bait. You want to go out and fish for catfish or bass or something like that. This is not going to work in saltwater. Okay, this is a freshwater only thing. Check legality where you are, but one of the cheapest bait shops on the planet is PetSmart. PetSmart or Petco. Feeder goldfish, and they usually come in two sizes fairly small, a little bit bigger. Depending on what you're fishing for, you can choose your own size, you can get a mix. uh, And they're going to be something like eight or nine cents for the little ones and 16 cents for the big ones. That means a hundred of them are $16. I mean, people buy them to feed them to fish in their aquariums. Is mainly what they're bought for, and they are gold mine dynamite for catfishing. Pass, love them. And if you think about why they kind of swim, kind of goofy and slow, right? They're perfect size to be eaten. That's when they sell them at perfect eating size. They're they're a tough fish. So as long as you got, like, an aerator box or a a bucket that you can put in the water or whatever, they tend to stay alive really well for a day of fishing. And even when they're hooked on the line, especially you hook them through uh, the front, through the lips, right, so you go under the chin and out one of the nose holes, they live a long time uh, on the line. You just got to check legality. There's places where they're so worried about them being released because they basically grow into carp. That they're illegal to use, but if they're legal where you are, they're a very in, inexpensive, always available form of bait, um, and you won't have to answer the stupid question when you go to PetSmart or Petco and say you want 50 of them. Well, what size aquarium are you going to put it in? Because I that bugs me. That, I won't get off on that, but like having some 18 year old girl with a nose ring ask me, who's been keeping fish since before she was born, you know, basically determine whether or not I qualify to buy, buy an auto sinkless catfish it annoys the shit out of me. But when you're buying bait. Uh, feeder fish, they don't ask, because their purpose in life is to be fed to other fish. Uh, these are the same fish I use for cycling aquaponics systems, and new ponds, etc. Um, incredibly hardy, and again, that, that bright color, they just kind of stand out, and they kind of swim kind of goofy, especially when they have a hook in them, so they attract predators really, really well. Um, another little hack, and this is a great one I've seen on YouTube, a lot of people doing it, it's where I got the idea, this is one I didn't come up with on my own, the pop-up laundry basket. So I'm big on being able to keep my gear as compact as possible. I do a lot of fishing where uh, I'm parking and walking in. I'm more on that with the Karen cart for my final tip. Or I'm going to a creek and I'm kind of walking down the creek. I don't really want to carry a ton of gear. So carrying like a minnow bucket to keep bait alive in or fish alive in is kind of a pain in the ass. But what you do is you get one of these pop up laundry baskets. Basically they fold flat and then they're about a foot in diameter and you can kind of they're kind of bendable so you can kind of shove them in a fishing bag or something like that. And all you do is you pop them open and they have a real fine mesh and you throw a rock or two in the bottom of them and you set them in the water in about a foot of water. And they're about when they pop up, they're about two foot high. Because again, these are for keeping like basically like a small amount of laundry in, is what they're for. So you, you throw that in the water and you got a live bait well. You've also got a way where you can keep fish and you can keep them alive because they're sitting in the water they just came out of. So you hook your fish, you reel it in, you unhook it, and you've got it sitting there. And as long as we are not talking about fish that do a lot of jumping, they're not getting out of it. And you just, you know, you just kind of toss them in the basket. And there's a bunch of reasons you'd want to do this. Let's say you're out pan fishing, you're catching bluegills or bullheads or something like that. And, you're like, you know, if I catch 10, 15 fish where it's worth my time to clean them, I'm going to keep them. If I catch two or three, I'm just going to toss them back. It's just not worth it. You know, I, I think anybody that's ever fished any length of time has gotten to a place where you feel like, it. if I get one or two that are worth keeping, I'm letting them go. Right? And we're talking fishing all it's just not, that's not even enough for a meal. You need like a good three or four fish per person, right? So you're like, that's not worth it. I'll let them go. You're not really sure whether you want to keep them or not. Well, if you do this with them, unlike a stringer or something where they do get some damage to their gills and all, they're perfectly fine when at the end of the day you decide you don't want to keep me turn them over and let them go. That's one thing. If you're out fishing for, let's say you're fishing for channel catfish or some other predator fish and you're using bluegills for bait, little baby bluegills, so you put a little like number 12 hook on, a little piece of worm, and you start catching them, it's a great way to keep them alive without having to bring a bulky, hard-sided uh, minnow bucket with you. Right, It folds up, goes away. And again, they're perfectly alive and you use the ones you want and then you let them go. If you're like me and you have ponds or something on your property and you're going to bring some fish home, well, you keep those fish perfectly healthy in their natural water and then you transform to some sort of a bucket with an aerator or something only for the ride home. So it's just so multifunctional. Now, the way I came up with this even though I saw it on YouTube and things like that with other people doing it, was I used to do it myself. Remember all the way back when I talked about being a kid fishing that pond that I used to push my bike up to? Well, I figured out that you could take like a burlap sack, roll it up and throw it in your kit, and you could do the same thing with it. You just tied a a, a rope around it, tied it to a tree, and threw it in the water. You could do it with an onion sack too. But what would often happen, and this is why I like this method better, is the fish would constantly be trying to get out of there and sooner or later because of the way it's woven, they'd end up burrowing a hole in it and then you'd go get your bait out and half or all of your bait was gone. Burlap bags would just wear out and onion bags had a lot looser mesh where they would be able to just eventually one of those one of the critters would figure out how to make a hole and then everybody would proceed out the hole. So the laundry basket since the mesh is so fine, it works perfectly. And with that open top, again it's about I'd say it's about eighteen inches to two foot in diameter, I'm not really sure but I'll put a link to the one I use there. If it's sitting in the water and it's like a foot or two away from you and you're catching smaller, like hand-sized bluegills or something you're going to take home and clean to eat or you're going to put in your pond or whatever, you, you can just kind of just toss them in there. Every once in a while you might miss one, but it ain't that big a deal. You don't have to be, like, pushing the thing or untying a bag or what have you. It just works really good. Next up, I want to give you my knot. That I use in fishing more than any other knot and tell you why I love it and why it will work for 90% of the reason, the ways you'll ever tie anything on. Hooks and, uh, snap swivels and stuff like that. It's called a palmer knot. And it's real hard to explain a knot, but basically you, you, uh, you know, in audio, you fold it over so it's a loop and you push the loop through, you tie an overhand knot, pull it through and yank. And it's that quick. And if you look it up and see how to do it on the audio, that's easy. Here's what's beautiful about it. For hooks and swivels and stuff, I'm not going to say it's any stronger or any less strong than than the clinch knot or twist knot that most people tie, but it's faster and it's easier. However, when I became in touch with this, we started doing really well on a, a fish called a walleye up in Pennsylvania. We were catching them on a, a type of a, a slab called a castmaster slab and it had a really it had just a hole in it, no swivel or anything. And you tied it directly onto this slab and then you, you would retrieve it kind of a jigging motion retrieve. And it had a really broad edge to it, and we started to lose fish and castmasters where the 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 basic uh, clinch knot would fail. And it was because of that wider, thicker piece of metal you were pulling the knot up against too. And that's where we kind of, like, put our heads together, talked to older fishermen, whatever, and me and my friends figured out, hey, this Palmer Knot thing holds on that broader uh, base really, really well. And that's when we started using it instead of, you know, doing a five-twist clinch knot. And I realized something about it. As long as it worked, it was faster, easier, stronger, and if you did it for a while, you could do it in the dark without a light. You could feel it. Way easy. They're trying to do a clinch knot like that in the dark. I guess there's some people that can do it. I can't, but I can do a Palmer knot most of the time in the dark. So that's why I love it. Now here's where it doesn't work: tying directly tying leaders on. You're going to need to use something like a blood knot or something else. That's one place. If the eye of whatever you're attaching is small enough that you can't double feed line through it, you can only three. When you double it and you push the loop through. Sometimes what you're using, that eye and the diameter of the line is, is such that if you double the line, it won't go through. Other than that in some specialty applications like tying on a wire leader or something like that, nine out of ten times, it is fast, easy, strong as hell. You can teach kids how to do it, and you can do it in the dark. And if you don't know how to tile palm or not, you need to look it up, and it's spelled P-A-L-O-M-A-R, and I'll, I'll find a video of somebody showing how to do it right, and I'll put it in the show notes for you today. Next, PVC pipe rod holders taking them to the next level okay now i think everybody and their mother has seen you take a piece of pvc pipe about as long as you need you cut one end flush and you cut the other end at an angle so it's got a point on it you take a rubber mallet you pound it in the ground you stick a rod in it and now you got a rod holder if you didn't know that now you do and very very popular surf fishing because sand is soft enough to get that sucker in the ground however when you're surf fishing, when you're river fishing, when you're dealing with anything with the current, it's often the case, and this is one, not the only reason, but one reason so many surf rods are so long. The higher the tip of the rod when it's sitting in a holder, the longer it takes before the line hits the water, the less water pressure has, the easier it is to tie, to get that line nice and tight and keep a nice, tight line so you know when a fish hits it, instead of having it pushed by the current. So how do you get a PVC rod holder higher without having a really high rod holder? Just cut yourself some extra sections. An inch and a quarter is the, the size of pipe that seems to have worked best for this for me. One inch works. Some of my larger rods, it's a little tight to get a, a, a rod butt in there, though. An inch and a quarter pipe's really, really stiff. Works really, really good for this. Just take a, some straight couplers. And you can take a couple extra pieces in your, your surf fishing kit or wherever else you use these and maybe have some two-foot sections of pipe. And then all you do is you take your rod holder, put it into the ground, put your straight coupler on it, put another section on there. It lifts your rod tip another two feet in the air. Really, really simple. Another really cool thing, you can get what's called a tulip auger on, uh, on Amazon or Garden Shop or something like that. and Basically, it goes in a cordless drill, and you drill a hole and you drop a tulip bulb in there or a nut or whatever you're planting. Well, if you get one of those and you're in hard ground, sometimes hard-packed sand is hard to actually pound a piece of PVC into, you just take your cordless drill with you when you go fishing, auger a hole in the ground, and then push the pipe straight into that hole. And if it's still a little bit tight, if your auger's not wide enough, I always carry a rubber mallet with me when I go fishing and use things like this. I use uh, rod holders called Sea Striker. Because they're really, really compact. They have a metal tip, but they hold that rod really low. Now, fishing in lakes and stuff like that, it doesn't matter. And most of the time, surf fishing doesn't matter. But if you want a cheap way to make rod holders, PVC pipe and a friggin' hacksaw. You know, I mean, it's that simple. And a rubber mallet, most of the time will get it done. But if you need a little extra, use a, a tulip auger to get them in the ground. Um, next, I want you to just talk to you a little bit today about edge. Because it is one of the biggest keys to catching fish when other people don't. Fish relate to structure and edge is structure and structure is edge, right? But not all edge is structure, but all structure is edge, okay? So one way we think about this is, you know, if we're fishing in a a lake or in the ocean and there's some rubble on the ground and maybe we can see that on a fish finder, we see flat, 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 and we see like a hump, there's just about guarantee, unless there's some reason otherwise, that there's going to be fish using that structure, or if we have nice straight shoreline and then we have a point that juts out in and comes back out and that's going to change the contour of the landscape, that's edge of that structure and that's going to have fish relating to it. And so I think most people intrinsically understand this. You go to a pond and there's a place with like a bunch of stick-ups and old dead timber and stuff like that, there's going to be fish relating to it. When we fish in Florida and we fish in the, in the bays... We go along the edge of the mangroves, and the fish relate to the mangroves. They go up under the mangroves. They go up against pylons of of bridges and things like that. Just about any structure is going to have some fish that relate to it. Basically, it creates a food chain. Uh, Structure creates uh, phytoplankton, which is your plant plankton, and then plank plankton attracts zooplankton, and the combination thereof uh, attracts small bait fish, and small bait fish attract larger fish, and, and so on. And that's part of the whole thing. Fish also, like people, thermoregulate. What does that mean? If it's blazing hot out and you have a bridge, a lot of times you'll find fish not necessarily in against the pylons, but if that bridge casts a shadow, those fish will sit in that shade when it's really hot out. There's a place I used to fish on Joe Pool Lake for sand bass, and I could troll in the shadow of the bridge with a I won't get into it today but a method of trolling I was using and I would I would hook fish on every pass all day long in the middle of the day at the highest heat temperature when it was really hot out they would relate to that shade, that shadow and if I if I were to put out a marker buoy and troll through there and that sun angle changed the fish would move with that shade shade is an edge so if you have a bank and it's really hot out and that bank has trees, and those trees are casting a shadow, it's at least worth checking that out. A weed line is an edge. A culvert is an edge. A narrowing or a widening is an edge. A place where a stream enters a river is an edge. Any place there's an interaction between two different things, you have an edge. And if you want the edge in fishing, seek the edge in the lake. And you will often see people, for instance, fishing in a lake. It looks like they're in the middle of the lake fishing. Where's the edge? Well, there's going to be a couple different ways there's an edge there. One is a hump. So you have basically, let's say water's like all 40 foot deep, and you have a hump comes up to like 18 foot and back down. That's the edge. You don't see it unless you have a fish finder, but it's there. Another way is sometimes we'll end up with bait fish in a ball like a bunch of um, uh, threadfin shad or something like that, they are not there because they said, oh, hey, let's go have a party in the middle of the lake and get eaten. What's probably happened is some plankton bloom or something's happened, and the wind has pushed the plankton out, and so now you have the plankton, the stuff the baitfish want to eat, forming a cloud, and then the baitfish form around the plankton cloud, and basically you have a fish-to-water edge that attracts the predators. But there's always something that's causing congregations of fish. Fish don't just get together for no reason at all. Now, you can have migration patterns where they're going like salmon swimming up the stream to to breed or something like that. That's a little bit different. I'll, I'll give you that. But in general, unless there's some sort of migration occurring where the fish are there because they're going somewhere, if you have fish congregated, there is an edge. And so whenever you catch fish... You actually, like, people say I had a good day today. I always say you need to ask why. And you're going to have water temperature, atmospheric conditions, season, air temperature, right? There's all those things. But somewhere in all of that, there was an edge. So we used to catch catfish like crazy on Joe Pool Lake at the dam breast, you know right where the dam was in the riprap so they put the dam in and they have these big boulders all over the face of the dam to prevent erosion right we call that riprap and we would fish a bait called danny king's catfish bait about a foot and a half deep under a bobber and about two foot of water so you figure out where the water is about two foot deep You kind of draw you know anchor the boat away from that so you're casting to it so you're not spooking them figure about how far out from the water's edge that that two-foot is, and you pull that, and we would catch catfish there like crazy during spawning season. Not before, not after. Maybe a little bit of pre-spawn, a little bit of post-spawn, but they would come in, they would be there, you could catch them like you were catching bluegill in a park pond. I mean, every cast, nice fish about four weeks out of the year a little like like a week of okay, two weeks of gangbusters and a week of gone. Why? spawn. Those holes in those rocks were a perfect place for those fish to go and nest and spawn. But there was an edge. There was a shoreline and there was a riprap edge. right So there's always an edge. so that's like when it comes down to it and you like go to a new place to fish. And you're not sure what to do. Look for an edge. We do this instinctively as fishermen. Bass fishermen get in a boat. they got the whole lake to fish. What do they do? They cruise the shoreline because it's the edge. Now, as you get a little bit more advanced, they're not always in that shallow water, but they're always in the edge. Edges in permaculture, we learn, create abundance. And where there is abundance, there's abundance. If you have an abundance of shad, you have an abundance of things that eat shad. If you have an abundance of plankton, you have an abundance of things that eat plankton. Always look for the edge and then understand the edge relative to the conditions. So that shadow that we talked about from the bridge, when the water temperature is cold, that's not where the fish are going to be, right? But when the water temperature gets to a point where it's hotter than the fish would prefer, just like you, if i got to hang out, I'm going to hang out in the shade in the summertime. Culverts, a lot of times you have a culvert that goes into a pond, and the water that is, goes back up into that culvert is deep enough for fish to swim in, you cast up into that culvert, you are going to catch fish. You do that in the winter when it's really cold. You may not as much because that water is even colder up there, and they don't want to be up in there. Right, so then you got to figure out where's the war- like a warm water discharge is an edge. We have some of these lakes around here that have power plants on them, and when they're making a lot of power and they're discharging water. In the winter, they're discharging water that's significantly warmer than the rest of the lake, and it is on where that discharge is. There's just a lot of things like that, so always look for the edge. And then I want to talk about the last thing I want to talk about is the Karen cart. I love my Karen cart. While well, I call it Karen cart, well, we all know who Karens are. <laughs> and if you go to like kids' soccer games and shit like that, you always see people that have these little look like rider redwood rider uh, wagons from back in my day except they fold up, and they're made out of, like, canvas, and so I started looking for a good fishing cart. These things were expensive, and all they were is carrying carts with some rod holders on them, so I went and bought myself an inexpensive pop-up cart, and I got some self-tapping screws, and I bought a couple rod holders, and I drilled a couple holes in the metal part of the carrying cart, and I attached the rod holders with the self-tapping screws, and I have a fishing cart for, like, 25% the cost of a fishing cart. This is good enough for everything except sand. If you're a dedicated surf fisherman and you want a cart, they make these carts that have these big orange, like big blow-up, almost like a really thick inner tube wheel on them and they kind of float on top of the sand. If you're anywhere where you have kind of that sand, um, you want to go that way. And I can tell you that because my Karen cart, I take it to fish a creek at a disc golf course. So I've got... You know, like frisbee golf, about two two and a half miles from here, I found this place with a beautiful creek running along the back of it. I mean, it looks like Pennsylvania, and this is Texas, you know. And it's just right there, right off the road. But you can't really get to the creek unless you walk across the disc golf course. So yeah, I do that quickly so I don't upset the golf players, you know. And I have my Karen cart, but. For some reason, right when you get down to where the creek is, there's a little patch of sand, and I gotta tell you it's a bitch to pull through there, but it's only fifteen fit, foot, so it doesn't really matter. But it, it made me realize right away the limit of the Karen cart is sand. So for a beach, it's not what I would use. I guess if you get it down onto the, the like the wet pack sand, it would be fine, but that dry sand down to the, the water's edge it would suck for. Otherwise, Karen carts are great. And what it's done for me is i talked about being minimalist and all but i want to bring fish home so it's let me do things like bring a five gallon bucket and 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 a small cooler and a few drinks and all my shit with me and it's expanded the places that i can fish really really well throw one more bonus for you in here at the end the number one way i've been able to find places to fish is not asking people at this point in time it's been getting on google maps and looking around me and looking for ponds, creeks, streams, and stuff like that, and figuring out if there's access there. And what I'll do sometimes, I'll find four or five places I want to check out. Maybe I don't even have time to fish. I'll just make a list of the GPS coordinates for my, my maps app. And I'll just when I'm out, I'll just go drive by a couple places, pull over, and say, Yeah, I could fish here. Yeah, this looks pretty good. No, this is a dump. Or it's probably got fishing, but it's too tr- it's too much trouble to get into and out of, or whatever. Or it's not, like there's no access that I'm not going to get yelled at by somebody for being on it or whatever. And that's been just a great way to find places to fish. And you also want to check all those small towns around you. See if they have a website that lists their parks. Because park ponds are sometimes gems for fishing. And the reason is that a lot of people that fish don't know how to fish. So people go fish there all the time, but they don't know what they're doing. And I've got parts where I see nobody catch nothing, and I catch all kinds of fish. So those are a little couple bonuses there at the end. My final thought on this is, you know, I really hope this was a good show for you guys. It's one of those easy ones for me to do. I'm just bullshitting talking about my life and things that I do. But I I really really think it would be a good idea for a lot of you all out there that maybe haven't fished in a while, get out and fish. And if you have kids, grandkids, nephews, nieces, take them with you. Take them with you, and I'll save my thoughts on why for our song of the day today in just a little bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and wrap things up and remind you guys that you can help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day, and this is my first day doing a show in advance, so I got this a little screwed up, but I had to run it yesterday. I'm hoping it's still available today. Um, it is the, uh, the mono price releasable cable ties. Now, I've been recommending these for as long as there's been a tspaz. I love them. They're basically a zip tie, like a nylon zip tie, like a cable tie, except they have a little lever on them so you can zip tie something and then you push the lever and take it back off and reuse it. So now, if you, you know, I was in structured cabling for a lot of my life, and you, when you zip tie a bunch of cables together, you cut the excess off. And you're not going to do that if you want to use this, but there's, I have used these things for so much on my homestead. You take four cattle panels and zip tie them together, you have a, a chicken tractor as long as your chickens ain't flying, uh, or a nursery, like a, a, a brooder for young birds. I have made Yankee gates, basically just basically wired up a, a cattle panel as a gate. And then, you know, since they release, you can close them and you can take them off to open it. Uh, anytime you need to put two <laughs> things together, man, uh, it, you give a redneck bail wire, zip ties, and duct tape. And if it, if it can't be done with that, you probably can't do it if you need two things put together. Right, I mean, you're gonna need a welder if those one of those three things or a combination thereof do not get it done. But the releasable ones are amazing. Now, the reason I ran them yesterday, and I'm and I'm rerunning them today on the hope that they're still available. The ten-inch ones were on sale for four dollars for a hundred pack. If you go to Home Depot or Lowe's. And by the cheapest 10-inch cable ties you can get, a 100-pack is going to cost you more than $4, I promise you. And they're not reusable. These are the black ones. They're UV-stabilized. I'm not saying they last forever, but they last a lot longer than the white ones. They're one of the most useful tools on my homestead. I hope they're still available for you. And roll with me here as I figure out how to kind of retool what I'm doing with item of the day, given I'm I'm at a point now where I'm doing the shows the day before they're released. So it's not real time. This is why you really want to get on the Survival Podcast Telegram channel. Now, if you want to be on the group, that's fine. That's where you talk to all the other people in the community or whatever. But the channel is where you just basically get texts from me about all the stuff I publish on the blog. If you're sitting there right now listening to this, pulling up the item of the day, Looking at it, and it says sold out or the price went back up. That did not have to happen if you were on the Telegram channel. That's why you went. And I ordered three packs of them today, which is yesterday for you. Do you know why? That's how many they would let me buy. They had a limit of three per order. And I tried to put a second order in. The filter caught me and said you can't do it. So if they are still available today, I'm ordering another three packs of them. That's 600 of them, yep, and I won't need them for a long damn time. Four bucks a pack, these are a deal, and there's a lot of fishing hacks you can come up with them, too. That brings us to our Song of the Day. Song of the Day today uh, is my own own song. I picked it myself to go with today's show. I just wasn't in love with the song John Adam set on the lineup for us, and with this show, I just wanted to play this song for you. It's my thoughts on taking kids fishing. This is by Trace Atkins, and it's called Just Fishing. And it's basically a story of taking his daughter fishing, and his daughter is is doing everything but. She's talking about Barbie dolls, and she's got her pink fishing rod, and she's fidgeting and playing around all over the place, and her it's just fishing and ten other things, and he's trying to teach her. But, boy, he gets the quality time with her. When I look back at my childhood and growing up fishing as much as I did, the only thing missing was spending more time with family while I was doing it. Don't get me wrong. It's probably the thing that that put me in the right frame of mind to get my life together enough to, to, to clear my shit up, join the Army, and get the hell out of there. Like, it's probably what kept my sanity for me. So, and I have a lot of great memories, and I'm glad that I was able to, uh, to figure out all the things that I did. And, and it, to me, it's a big part of who I am today that I grew up fishing. But I can tell you, like, Taking a kid fishing, it, it's it's work. On some levels, it's a pain in the ass. It takes a while to get them up to speed to where you're not spending more time untangling shit or listening to I'm hungry, I need a snack, I got to go to the bathroom, I'm cold, I'm hot, I got bit by a mosquito, and anything else that people can come up with, or kids can come up with. But it's worth every damn bit of it. It's worth every damn bit of it. And it's why, while we were in Florida recently, I took my son fishing alone. I took two guided trips. I took my daughter-in-law and my grandson out on one. It was a big deal for her. She wanted to catch sharks. We didn't catch any big ones, but she got to catch a shark. Well, I took my son because for four hours, there was a guide there, but, you know, he's just kind of doing his thing. For four hours, we had time together. We were isolated. There's nothing to distract. There's no... You know, I say let them have fun, let them talk about what they want, let them fish it. You don't have to be quiet when you're fishing, folks. Fish can't really hear you unless you're really, really loud, right, unless you're just obnoxiously loud, especially if you're not in a boat. If you're in a boat and you're banging the deck or whatever, that's one thing. But if you're sitting on a bank, you can talk a little bit. It ain't going to hurt nothing. It don't matter. If you teach them to a five-year-old, it do not matter what you catch anyway. But shut off the electronic devices, kick back, and spend time with them. Because when they're old men. They'll remember that. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
1: I'm lost in her there holding that pink rotten reel. Doing almost everything but sitting still Talking about her ballet shoes and training wheels And her kittens And she thinks we're just fishing I say daddy loves you baby one more time She says I know I've got a bite And all this laughing Crying, smiling, dying Here inside It's what I call Living And She thinks we're just Fishing on the riverside Throwing back what we could fry Drowning worms and killing time Nothing too ambitious She ain't even thinking about What's really going on And she thinks we're just fishing She's already pretty Like her mama is Gonna drive the boys all crazy Give her daddy fits And I better do this Every chance I get Cause time is ticking. Yeah it is And she thinks we're just on the riverside Throwing back what we could fry, drowning worms and killing time Nothing too ambitious She ain't even thinking about what's really going on right now But I guarantee this memory's a big one And she thinks we're just Days we're just fishing Yeah